This is the third and final part of an examination of the element of register in music. In part two, we were listening to various kinds of music written over the last four or five centuries, and as a way of getting to know some of the differences between them, we began by asking, in which range or octave does each style have the melody and in which the accompaniment? We heard how in the generation before Beethoven, as a general rule, it was common to have the melody primarily in the high register, usually in the violins, such as Haydn has it here in his Symphony No. 100. But with Beethoven, the melody went from octave to octave throughout the available range. sometimes even within a single phrase. As these examples show, simply by virtue of being high or low, a melody's pitch level adds an effect of its own. This, quote, vertical dimension can be utilized for various effects. The symphonies of Beethoven derive some of their intimate moods from the use of it. Sometimes the register a melody is written in can blur the boundary between what's melody and accompaniment, or even what's music and special effect. And in Beethoven's case, this produces an extraordinary and enigmatic sound that's like a combination of the two. For instance, something like this can be said of this moment of his F minor piano sonata, opus 57, the Appassionata. A passage like this is certainly a melody of a kind, but it's an effect at the same time, and it's one that comes from the fact that the melody repeats at a higher octave. I'll continue a little longer with Beethoven in our survey of style, because he's Beethoven, but also because the clarity of his music is useful in grasping some new ideas we'll look at soon that are key to understanding the rest of the 19th century. This will mean repeating one or two things from parts one and two, but it's essential to have very clearly in one's mind the two properties of register and their function as a point of departure for those new things. So let's review them one more time. If we begin by imagining all the notes available to a composer, imagine a piano keyboard for this, it's natural to assume that the only relationship these notes have to each other is that one is higher or lower than another. In other words, that their pitch is all that distinguishes them. It's of course true that no two notes are the same on the keyboard from highest to lowest. This is the first property of register, what I'm calling pitch level. And if we were all dogs, ducks, or donkeys, I suppose, I don't know for sure, this is all the difference one note would have from another. But for humans, this isn't the only relationship the notes have. 
Sticking just with the white keys of the keyboard for the moment, if we play one and continue consecutively up another seven keys, we would recognize that we've arrived at the same note one octave higher. In other words, there's a further division of the pitch space every eight notes, where the same relationship repeats between these eight as did between the previous eight, and so on. Each of these octave ranges can be called a register. And because the eight-note range repeats higher and lower, we have multiple octaves. And they're equal and not equal to each other all at once. They're equal in regard to their makeup, the same seven notes plus one. They're unequal in regards to their pitch, as we said before. But it's the equality of the octaves that gives us the second property of register, octave equivalence. And it's tremendously important for music in the following way. If a man listening to a flute can hum the melody it plays, even though the range of the man's singing voice is considerably lower than the flute, it must mean that something about the music is separable from its range and remains recognizable in a different octave. The melody is register insensitive. It can make sense outside the octave in which the flute played it. Octave equivalence gives us register insensitivity in music, and this is the most important point to remember for coming discussions and episodes. This is what we mean when we say that octave equivalence preserves a melody across all octaves. So I can sing a tune and change the octave in the middle without disrupting, quote, the tune as you'd recognize it. Silently streaming, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. The melody is still intelligible across the change of octave. This is something opera singers are very familiar with. They'll sing their part as it is until the high notes show up, which they'll lower an octave to save wear and tear on the voice in rehearsal, saving their voice for the performance. It's called marking. Now, this should seem stranger than it is. A melody, after all, is a series of notes in some order, which naturally creates a contour as its notes rise and fall. Shifting half of the notes down to another pitch level should distort that contour and alter the melody drastically, and indeed it does. And yet, doing this by exactly eight notes somehow preserves the contour and the sense of the tune. It doesn't lose any important feature by being transferred by an octave. This is because transferring the notes exactly eight notes down or up means all the notes are again the same notes just in another octave. The A's are again A's, the B's are again B's, and so on, what are called pitch classes. It's comparable to holding an object in front of a mirror and moving your gaze back and forth between it and its reflection. Viewing an object in two such equivalent universes gives an acceptably equal image than if the mirror distorted the shape of the object. However, any effect the melody has in one octave and not in another, or any feature that doesn't survive the transfer, is obviously register-sensitive. This is more often true of instrumental effects. 
And here I'd like to anticipate a possible misunderstanding. Effect can mean at least two things here. In one sense, it can mean an extra musical effect, a suggestion like a visual image not directly related to music, the effect of a rhythm being like a march. In another sense, effect can refer to a mood, as in the effect is peaceful or relaxed. And while that can be due to the register, it doesn't have to be. A melody may very well have a different character in a low, middle, or high octave, yet be equally peaceful in all three. We have to be careful not to equate a state like peaceful as coming from register or from any one element. All I'm saying is that pitch has something to contribute to it. Beethoven's Eroica Symphony is a good example for seeing all this. We first hear the melody at the beginning in the cellos. Soon it passes into the flute, clarinet, and horn several octaves higher. And it appears a third time resolutely in the trumpets. The mood is rather grand in all three. Nothing about it has to be in a low octave, like the cellos, in the middle, like the trumpets, or high, like the flutes, to be grand or whatever the emotion is. Other elements seem to be responsible for the grandeur of the melody, but it does have a different character in each register. And of course, if it can be heard in all these different registers, as the same melody, like all melodies, it's register insensitive. Now, at the start of the second movement, an extra musical association is evoked, something approximating funeral drums, for which the low range of the double basses is indispensable. The strings of the double basses take slightly longer to sound due to their thickness compared with those of the violins. They begin by producing a growling effect, so their pitch is less clear at first. Beethoven's made use of this to hint at the indistinct rumble of ceremonial drums. And yet, this marvelous effect isn't so unambiguous that you don't hear the notes as a melody at the same time. So while the low octave lends it the gloomy mood and association, there's just enough pitch class audible in the notes to hint at melody as well. This is what we're referring to when we say that placing a melody in a low register often blurs the distinction between music and effect, or between the two properties of register. The double basses and cellos have a combination of register-specific effect and melody, which is register-insensitive. It would be ruining the subtle effect, for example, if to more fully realize the extra musical imagery, a conductor were to replace the double bass notes with actual drums. 
that would wipe away the faint ghost of duet between bass and violin. Now, to reiterate, this is in comparison to the classical style of the 18th century that had just passed, where the low register has more functional roles, among which is marking time or keeping motion, which we can hear if we turn once again to Haydn's Symphony No. 100. Again, I'm simplifying matters quite a lot, but it's basically true to say that in this style, the attention goes to the upper register, as the melody is predominantly on the violins. One phrase is heard in relation to the next, not in relation to the contrasting register below it. This puts an emphasis on thought of a musical kind, of course, as the phrase is what's developing. There's a layer of objectivity to the body of sound. The mind is being engaged. But in Beethoven, because he uses all the octaves, the phrase doesn't necessarily have to develop this way. Sometimes it doesn't develop at all. It merely repeats in different octaves. The change becomes vertical. And this shifts the emphasis towards feeling. Relative to the classical style, his music sounds more subjective, for lack of a better way of putting it. We can see Beethoven doing this in his third symphony. His opening phrase starts in the cellos, itself a departure from the classical model by being in the cellos, and then traverses the orchestra vertically in pitch. The difference each time it's played is almost as physical as it is auditory. Listen again. See if you feel a difference when it changes octave. And if so, where in the body do you or would you feel them? Well, if you felt anything while you were hearing all that, or even if you felt you were gazing in an upward or downward direction in your mind, this is the inward sensation that pitch level brings to music. Or one might say at times it introverts the attention.
this is the crucial change for the 19th century. The music begins to be motivated less by how it develops in terms of proportion and structure across time, and more by dramatic gestures aiming at certain emotions in the moment, what we now call the Romantic period. We'll return to this point later. What we've just seen in the Third Symphony is that the volatility of the registers, each taking a turn at the melody, is one way that Beethoven moved the former style towards the latter. Hearing a melody played by one instrument after another like this brings into further focus something already begging to be noticed by our example of the man who sings the melody of flute plays in his own voice range. The fact that what's register insensitive is also singable whereas the register-sensitive effect usually isn't. You can hum the tune you just heard perfectly, but singing the growl of the funereal double basses we heard earlier is not possible. In other words, register insensitivity goes to the heart of even our musical memory. What's singable is easy to remember. It also makes the unsingable parts easy to forget, for better and worse. As we said in part one, our memory of melodies seems to be in some hypothetical single octave in the mind that has no specific register. Our memory is, in a sense, register insensitive. Unless we're talking about people who have spent some time training their inner ear, for most people most of the time, the mind has a habit of condensing all the melodies into this hypothetical register insensitive octave. You can easily inspect this yourself. Bring to mind the melody Happy Birthday. Take a moment and hear it as clearly in your head as you can. Now, change the song to some other one that you know and hear that as clearly as you can. Now, what register were they in? When you changed the tune, to this other one that you know, did the register change with it? Did they even sound like they have a register while they're only in your head? If I were to ask you to sing these songs, you wouldn't even think to ask, what register am I going to sing it in? You just do it automatically. It comes out as mysteriously and naturally and with as little effort or examination as your sentence grammar does when you order food all the melodies come out of the same condensed space from which you sing. This condensation of register is what made the Blue Danube sound just fine, sung in one octave. That's how anyone would remember the tune who knows it, when actually the melody is split between several octaves. There's a musical grammar operating somewhere in the mind that prunes down music to the gist. In other words, there's more information coming to the ear than you can remember, and what the mind does is to keep the tune and forget the exact register. We condense the melody into our singing range. In fact, if we didn't do this, melodies like the Blue Danube would be unsingable. 
But the fascinating thing is that we remember it that way too, the condensed version, rather than how it actually was. Now, Beethoven's fluidity of register allows us to ask another question that'll be significant later. Usually, it's easiest to tell a melody apart from its accompaniment by the fact that the melody is pitched higher. But if you have it in every octave, like Beethoven does, then it's one sound among many. There are a lot of notes being played in the background, and those are also in many registers, up, down, all over. What makes something a melody? How does the ear know how to separate it from what is merely accompaniment or background or instrumental effects? I'll play you the Beethoven Third Symphony segments again. This time, try to listen to all the sounds. See if you can discover how it is that you know the melody from everything else. So, how did it go, I wonder? If you guessed things like it's slower than the background, its rhythm is different, it's louder than the rest, it's the same tune over and over while everything else around it is changing, and other things like this, all of these are valuable observations, and you should hold on to them to further your own insight. You definitely shouldn't worry if your answer turns out to be different from the one I give, and I can see the look on some of my musician friends' faces who will know what a difficult question I've thrown at you. But the point is simply to focus your ears to finer differences between one type of melody and another. The full answer, of course, can only be given by referring to several elements, but we're concerned right now only with register. And if we limit ourselves to what register has to say about it, we arrive at what I think is one of the most interesting phenomena in music, one that's directly related to pitch level on the one hand, an octave equivalence slash pitch class on the other, and our hypothetical register-insensitive condensed octave in the mind. It also lets me deliver on the promise I made at the end of register part one of saying something interesting about them. Let's try a little experiment. I'll play you a song, and then I'll ask you a question. 
Here is an aria from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. You hear that pan flute? Here's what I want you to do. I'll play it once more, and without skipping back to hear it again, replay it in your head, and then hum it very slowly to yourself or out loud. I'll give you a few seconds. Ready, set, Go. Were you able to do it? I'm guessing you came up with this. Da, 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 da. The pan flute plays that in less than a second in real time. Good. Let's try it with another example. This is the dance of the reed pipes from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. You hear that upward swoosh? Let's try the same thing with that. See if you can slow it way down and sing just the upward swoosh back. This is an experiment listening to your inner ear, so again, try recalling it from memory. Don't skip back. Here's the part. Once more. Ready, set, go. Was that harder to do? I'm guessing it was. Don't obsess about it. Let's try it one more time with another example that might be clearer. This is Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 2. Here's the riff. Once more. Ready, set, go. Any luck? What's different? You probably could recall the top notes easily enough. Why do you think the second and third examples are harder and the Mozart gave you less trouble? There are a few differences, but there's one major reason. The pan flute notes in the Mozart example are all in the same octave. As long as notes stay within the range of one octave, the ear has no trouble absorbing them, even if they're very fast. But the moment a bunch of notes cross a span larger than an octave, the ear somehow economizes attention and gives up on following them individually. Instead, it absorbs only their direction as a rising or falling sound. In other words, there's a barrier at the distance of an octave from wherever notes begin. It's similar to an optic blind spot. When you're trying to find your blind spot, you fix your gaze at one point with one open eye, 
and move an object to the side of that point of focus until the object disappears from view. You can see around what seems like a vanishing point, and if you move your eye, the blind spot moves with it. Well, from wherever notes begin ascending or descending, there's an auditory deaf spot at the distance of an octave, above and below, past which the notes get obscured. The only thing the ear clearly perceives when this barrier is crossed is that a bunch of notes went higher or lower. The fabric of the vertical dimension is such that, within an octave, your ear absorbs the song accurately enough to recall it and sing it. Outside that range, it's as if the notes pass through a curved space that distorts their sound. Of course, distorted is not the same as disappeared. So the deaf spot is not exactly analogous to the optic blind spot, because with your blind spot, you see nothing at all, including the blind spot itself. With the octave barrier, you still hear the change of frequency, because you do hear the rising or falling pitch, just not with enough clarity to hum them back. The thing that's actually distorted is their melody, so perhaps we should call it an auditory tone-deaf spot. To put it in terms of these two properties, there's a loss of pitch class, but not pitch level. The thing that made the notes singable was their equivalence to the same notes in other octaves. For that, they have to be clear in some octave. If the notes span a larger space, they're not clear enough in any one octave to then be extracted out by octave equivalence in our condensing single octave memory. The reason why Strauss's waltz sounds fine even if its phrase is in different registers is that the first half of the phrase is in one octave and the next half in another, but neither crosses the boundary of its own octave. Octave equivalence can then do its work of preserving the melody. If we formulate this into a rule, it goes something like this. A melody cannot cross a range greater than an octave in a single direction and retain its clarity. If it does, it turns into an effect. So a part answer to what makes something a melody is it generally stays within a range of one loop of the musical alphabet, or octave, most of the time. If you can hum it, chances are its range is small. And when you're searching your voice because happy birthday is too high or low for you, it's this octave barrier that you're sensing and trying to cross correctly. You literally cannot sing intelligibly, even to yourself, until you've located where the octave is that everyone's singing in. You can almost feel this. I don't exactly know why this is. I've wondered about it. It's interesting that a tune can be out of singing range, but will still be absorbed as long as no part of its span exceeds eight notes. That is, it's as if the ear is okay with anything that would be singable if it were brought into singing range. It suggests the ear listens vertically, through all the octaves. If we come back to our mirror analogy, it's like looking into the infinite reflections. You can see an object you hold in any of the reflections as long as you hold it within the borders of the mirror. Most melodies stay within an octave, and we hear the internal relationships easily. You might also be thinking, a melody is easier to recall the slower it is. That's true, but even then, 
never as easy as when it's in one octave. For example, here's the Tchaikovsky slowly. My friend Melanie Shirinyan has kindly played it for us at a slower tempo. And the Beethoven. But neither is as clear as... Here's Melanie again on the piccolo. This is also a feature at the start of the Ride of the Valkyries. The string's thrust, as I called it, is a five-note rise... doesn't cross the octave boundary, and that's why it's easier to hear it repeat in the various octaves. The other parts around it do cross it, and blend into the background as effects. With some experience, the ear can learn to distinguish these notes as well, but it's not necessary, nor does being able to do it improve the appreciation of beauty significantly, so we don't need to worry about it. You may feel the need to listen to this segment more than once to fully get the sound of this into your ears. And if so, I encourage you to do that. The octave barrier demonstrates that we have a melody comprehension range of one octave. So a melody is perceived and separated from the background by the fact that its notes stay within the span of an octave, no matter how high or low that octave is. This truth about the octave was silently but carefully alluded to in the famous 18th-century manual for composition, Gradus ad Parnassum, meaning Steps Toward Parnassus, by Johann Josef Fuchs. Today, in many ways, the book is profoundly misunderstood, but it was the one from which Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven were given instruction. Written in the form of a conversation between master and pupil, In it, the student is taught how to write music by first learning to write the vocal style of the 16th-century church composer Giovanni Battista Palestrina, whose Pope Marcellus Mass we heard in Part 2. At one point along these lessons, the master objects to a melody written by his pupil. When asked why he objected, the master draws attention to the wide range of the notes and responds, If at all possible, you should not exceed the five lines of the staff, that is, just over an octave, one must always keep singleness in mind. End quote. This is the octave barrier without being expressly articulated. It's also a sensitive observation of the limitation it imposes on singability due to the inner ear's condensed octave. 
Having studied register as we just have, we're in a position to understand the logic behind the principle of composition mentioned by the master. I wonder if there are certain eastern scales that are equivalent to two octaves of the western one, and whether a similar phenomenon can be heard at that point if their scale repeats. They'd have to repeat at higher and lower pitch levels to begin with, and most ethnic scales are only one octave and don't. In any case, the octave barrier will become important in multiple ways, as we'll see. Its interest is that it's the phenomenon that connects the two properties of register. By widening the span of a melody to more than an octave, in either direction, the melody which the ear absorbs through the second property of register, octave equivalence, turns into an effect of the first property, of pitch level. Until the early 19th century, classical music primarily existed in churches and courts. And appropriate to the functions of those locations, classical music's themes and subjects were, for the most part, biblical or mythological in nature. But by the time of Beethoven's death in 1827, the location where music was consumed had changed to the comparatively secular domains of the opera houses, concert halls, living rooms, and salons of the European middle class. Given the quality of church music until this point in history, it's difficult not to conclude that sacred music of any sincerity fell silent in the early 19th century, and a good argument can be made that it has never revived. Certainly the genius of no composer such as a Bach or Handel has ever been lavished on it as it was before. With no small help from Beethoven himself, music now seemed to express all the varied moods of this life and experience. Composers wrote with great imagination, with an ear toward the expressive potential of the registers for their power of suggestion, aiming to depict the emotion of the fragmentary moment, the spontaneous. It was now from history, literature, poetry, and the novel that composers sought inspiration and for their subjects. For example, in Franz Liszt's Mephisto Waltz No. 1, listen to how much the registers are employed in depicting the rustic atmosphere and the violins being tuned inside for a dance as Faust and Mephistopheles enter the village inn. By now, a tune in the tenor register of the strings was nothing strange. Mephistopheles grabs the violin out of the hand of a fiddler and plays intoxicatingly as Faust gets deliriously attracted to a dark-haired woman. 
There is a quarrel and a bacchanal, and the intensity of both is depicted in this dance of registers. When Liszt transcribed this piece for piano, this moment turns into a testament to his genius for evoking imagery and sounds on the keyboard. In this passage, I always hear Mephistopheles chuckling in the background to himself as he plays. As you can plainly hear, the 19th century was the age of virtuosos, all struggling to innovate new sounds on their instruments. Beethoven had already raised the level of piano technique to such a height that his late sonatas were playable only by himself and the best career pianists on earth at the time. Beethoven had also bequeathed a rich field of new ideas. And indeed, the music of the whole century can be seen as a reaction by all composers in one way or another to the near-inescapable influence of Beethoven. But running your hands up and down the keyboard to show your skill is certain to err on the side of noise, and register will become the chief element of abuse. As a lesser composer tries to copy an effect by Beethoven without having the rest of his genius, two errors become easier than ever before. It's suddenly possible to have a promising idea in the, quote, wrong octave, or to think that contrast of register is a good idea in itself. Listen to how even Liszt ends this very Mephisto waltz. hear that with some fatigue. The noise leaves nothing to ponder in the ending silence, and this is a piece that balances a lot of sound quite well. It's as though he wrote a few endings, loved them all, and decided he'll finish the piece three times. I mean, first it's this... Then it's this... Then it's this. Am I imagining it? This problem wasn't there in the orchestral version. There, it's a better summary, which is the point of this passage.
the fact is many of Liszt's effects on the piano were written to sound like he had more than two hands, and when he played them himself it must have looked like it too. This flaw affects nearly all the great piano composers from this point on. For example, I feel this same fatigue in Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto at least once in each movement, if only for a moment. Both the orchestra and piano parts seem to me to overexploit register. And it's at this point that the octave barrier we talked about becomes important. Its rule was this. When notes pass the span of a single octave in one direction, they become effects rather than melodies, and octave equivalence dissipates. When Beethoven repeats something up or down an octave, he always makes sure to keep his ideas within an octave. That's what retains their melodic quality, their singability. But merely going up and down and up and down... All this pyrotechnical display is eminently forgettable as music. You might feel differently, and that's fair. But to me, there's a slight but telling abuse in these moments that invites a certain attention deficit. So in fact, one of the great challenges of this age was how to show technical brilliance while containing the noise from the inevitable register overload. This is as good a question as any with which to introduce Frédéric Chopin, one of the most gifted at striking this balance. Listen to this tune from his G minor ballad, Opus 23. Now, notice what's different when he repeats it. It's verbatim, except that the last note is repeated an octave higher. Beethoven routinely repeated a phrase several times in different octaves, as in his Sixth Symphony. Chopin is doing a similar thing, but with one note. It's an embellishment through register. It adds nothing but the sudden brightness of a higher octave. A little grace, but doesn't really change the symmetry of the phrase. Being a miniaturist helps. Most of Chopin's pieces take a few minutes, sometimes even less. 
Later in this piece, he does this again. Now it's twice up an octave. The detail betrays the physical closeness of performer and listener the music was intended for. In those heavily draped salons, this is the sort of minutia the fashionable ladies and artists in Paris would sit around listening to. If you get a chance to hear Chopin played in the intimacy of a living room, you'll see how much better he sounds than on the concert stage. Many of his pieces are full essays in register, and his ideas sparkle through the piano's seven octaves, combining everything we've talked about. Take, for instance, the ballad in A-flat, Opus 47, which begins like this. It's almost an operatic quartet. The part you'd sing keeps changing register. The first phrase is in the alto register and ascends an octave. The second answers in the tenor register and descends an octave. This is symmetry by register as well as by rhythm, or the four-bar phrase. Then the same melody in the bass, and the cadence back up in the alto or low soprano. The first period, in other words, is a song. In the second, very clearly, a dance is beginning. There's another symmetry here. The first period began in the middle registers and expanded outward towards the ends of the keyboards with the hands going wide. This one begins with the hands in the outer registers and moves into the middle of the piano. Notice it's also a contrast dynamically. The first period was soft, the second one is loud. Now pay attention to this sighing motif in the middle, this boom. Da da, da da. Chopin has this motif changing octaves. In the alto, it's da da. In the tenor, it's da da. This adds a level of subtlety that's not immediately obvious, but it's the beginning of something. As we've seen before, even though the melody is shared by the registers, we hear this song through them vertically in our hypothetical octave because of octave equivalence. 
But now listen to how this motif, which comes out of the middle registers, expands into the full range of the keyboard, where the hands begin gliding up and down. This crosses the octave barrier in both directions and gradually obscures the tune, leaving only the rhythm and the direction. That changes the song into a dance, and the gradualness of the change is magical. Chopin has given the virtuoso display a higher purpose. It comes at the point the dance takes over from the song. Try to sing this from the beginning, just to see how gradually it becomes impossible to sing, but easier to feel in the body. Now, there's another flourish over the whole range, but this time it's a summary. Now, the bass note we just ended on sounds like a conclusion, the resolution that comes to rest there and die away. But then... It rises. The bass note is an end and a beginning. Going to it, it's a resolution, a slackening of tension, Coming from it, it's suddenly a lead-in back to the song, the opening period. This is because the passage that just ended was only half of the first section. The section has to close again, and it closes by repeating the first period. But these details weren't necessary, unless you want to keep attention on the lowest octave for some reason. As the period comes to a cadence, something new happens. There's the miniaturist Chopin, a little repeat up the octave. That creates a little tension too, like the bass right before. Suddenly leaving one register and jumping to another like that leaves phrases unfinished in different registers. If you keep drawing attention to the registers, there's going to be literally attention to them. And now they resolve as a song, in a melodic, singable way, first in the bass and then in the soprano. And that completes the paragraph. The whole section has a register goal. It begins around middle C and ends in the outer treble and bass. 
It's Beethoven's vertical development in a new guise, in the embellishment, the motif, the phrase, the period, and the whole section. So we can see that there's a real art in translating a melodic idea into the idiom of a specific instrument, and this is why there's only a handful of great piano composers. The melody that turns into an effect as the octave barrier is crossed couldn't have been put to a better use. The concept is a song turned into a dance and back into a song. So despite the constant change of register, there isn't the slightest sense of fatigue or obviousness about it. This is surely one of the fruits of the hour or two that Chopin would routinely spend on a single measure or phrase. And it's for subtlety like that that he's nicknamed the poet of the piano. The abuse of register on the piano is, I'm convinced, why Camille Sansons included pianists as one of the species in his Carnival of the Animals. Nineteenth-century audiences familiar with the inelegant virtuoso noise would have gotten Sansons' wit immediately, that of pianists being animals with a one-octave scale as their mating call. And here we have the forerunner of cartoon music register as slapstick, like animals that jump, like the kangaroo, fly overhead in the aviary, tread heavily below like the elephant, and of course swim in the aquarium. Yes, I too am convinced this is where the Disney writers got their inspiration for the introduction to the animated Beauty and the Beast. It does have an uncanny resemblance. The orchestra had come a long way since its birth in the 17th century, with many improvements to instruments, especially brass and woodwinds. Richard Strauss observed that among the many innovations made by Wagner to the orchestra, one of them was to demand, quote, the virtuoso technique of the solo concerto for all instruments of the orchestra. Beethoven had already required this in his last string quartets, end quote. In fact, Many changes to instruments are because of virtuosos, who work hand-in-hand -hand with instrument makers and composers. On this matter, Strauss made the following illuminating remarks. A composer, in his judgment, should, quote, 
ask instrumentalists of all kinds to familiarize him with the exact technique of their instruments and with the timbre of their registers. He should, so to speak, try to find out the secrets of the orchestra tuning room. There are improvements which an inventive player may have discovered for his mouthpiece, for details in the construction or the material of his instrument, technical tricks devised in an idle hour for the player's own amusement. All this may open unexpected vistas to a creator in search of new forms of expression for new ideas. It may be more valuable for progress than any treatise which is primarily based on the achievements of the past. Thus, the practical instrumentalist, through his skill, stimulates the composer to new ideas. Great ideas, on the other hand, which at first do not seem feasible, gradually lift the ambitious instrumentalist to their level. They have had the greatest influence on progress in the improvements in their technique and on the enrichment of their expressive possibilities. End quote. With the finishing touches put on it by Wagner, the modern orchestra was now an ensemble of virtuosos in each chair, with vastly greater flexibility in the type of music it could play in each register than ever before. The Ride of the Valkyries is exactly such an example. And so we come full circle and back to Bernard Shaw and his comments on Verdi's Otello. I'm going to hope that you remember this discussion from part one. Go back, if you need, to the beginning of episode four of this podcast. If you don't understand the following, you probably haven't heard that episode. Assuming Shaw is not playing us all, and I'm still not sure, we can understand him better now. On the whole... Italy in the 19th century was a vocal music culture, not an instrumental one. Music meant melody, and there's great wisdom in that assumption. After all, how much talent does it take to write a vamp? Um pa pa needs no genius, but writing a great tune does. A culture for which music is primarily melodic is not going to be as concerned with the precision of what happens in each octave of the orchestra even if its composers are. They'll pay attention to the melody, the part they can sing and remember. German musical culture, on the other hand, rooted more in instrumental music, is somewhat more concerned about pitch and octave. This is a cultural difference respecting register and its sensitive and insensitive aspects, if we were to turn to our terminology. But the increase in orchestral virtuosity means that the orchestra can be used in much more suggestive ways in both cultures. So that when the great Italian Verdi, in his late operas, uses the orchestra to make extra musical effects, there was a sense in his audience of some foreign influence. Can you sing the Otello sky music? No. The effect is tied to the exact pitch, which is register-sensitive, and that's tied to the instruments, which is way too high for the voice. The effect is not in the voice part. Il Balen, on the other hand, from his earlier opera Il Trovatore, oh, 
could be sung by anyone and in any range, like Happy Birthday. That's register insensitive. This, I think, is the change in Verdi's style that earns Bernard Shaw's disapproval. He wants to sing. Where's good old Verdi the melodist, he says, in effect. The same idea doesn't bother Nietzsche at all, because of the curious internal sensation register can create that Beethoven had already exploited. Wagner's orchestral music reminds him of Brunhilde's innocence, purity, and especially fidelity. We can see that from a deep study of earlier music, Verdi had learned what his tradition couldn't have taught any composer. Years before Otello, Verdi hints at this in a letter to his lifelong friend Oprandino Arriva Bene while discussing Italian music. Quote, you say some very wise things about the arts in your last letter. Only in music, one must not be exclusively a melodist. In music, there is something more than melody something more than harmony. There is the music. This will seem like a riddle to you. Let me explain. Beethoven was not a melodist. Palestrina was not a melodist. Don't get me wrong, a melodist in the sense that we understand it. End quote. Verdi is talking about a piece of his native culture with a fellow countryman and saying one has to listen beyond just the melody. He's speaking generally, so he's not going to spell it out, but he's explicit enough about the fact that music shouldn't be limited to just the melody as we understand it, in quotes. In short, only what's singable, and relegating everything else to accompaniment. What register is the tune in? What instrument plays it? Is it the melody, the only one, or is it one of several? And a great deal more questions besides these go into what Verdi refers to as, quote, the music, when referring to Beethoven and Palestrina. With this in mind, let's re-listen to the Act One segment of Otello. Right before the nightscape that brings the curtain down, Verdi sets to music Otello's words, A kiss. A kiss. Another kiss.
That's what used to be the big melody, the symmetrical period in Verdi's earlier style. Now, rather than sung and doubled by the instruments, Verdi writes it for the orchestra and has Otello sing against it. The tune has been pushed behind the lyrics. This puts some space between character and music, where the melody can be heard as an inner thought or feeling that wouldn't have been associated quite that way otherwise. Of course, as always, there's the practical reason to consider as well. Why would Otello sing through his kiss? Like the Chopin ballad, there's a two-note sighing motif here as well, based on the two syllables of the word bacio, which I think everyone knows in Italian means kiss. Un bacio, un bacio, ancora un bacio. The third phrase is very interesting, right before the words another kiss, where Verdi meaningfully repeats just the sighing motif up an octave. This is what Chopin did with the octave embellishment. I'm not saying Verdi is getting it from Chopin, just that he's doing a similar thing. And we've also said that higher pitches tend to intensify the sound in certain instruments. Repeating this segment up the octave represents the intensity with which Otello feels the kiss. Desdemona, too, only murmurs Otello's name against the phrase, again bearing in mind the same practical consideration as well. This melody reprises in Act 4 when Otello, now wounded and dying after having murdered Desdemona, goes to kiss her again to join her in death. Verdi's letters show that he wanted Otello to die before completing his last syllable, ba-cho, taking literally Shakespeare's lines. I kissed thee ere I killed thee, no way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss. The music returns when, reflecting on his own blindness, Otello's spell of rage breaks, and he sees Desdemona again as he did in Act One, and mutters that she was a pious creature born under a malignant star.
the absence of Desdemona's voice where it was in the melody becomes indescribably painful. This melody, then, is, among other things, Otello's loving gaze. The pace, the flexibility in the melodic period, the melody straddling two octaves, the registers being half accompaniment, half effect, the orchestral associations of physical states, all this shows Verdi wants his audience not to sing along, but to feel and listen to the character in front of the sound and what reality looks like to him when he's seized by his subjective impressions. Far from just entertainment, I think this invites us to pay attention to the conflicts, mental or moral, as approaching more the way a psychologist, someone like Freud, might describe them. And indeed, when Otello premiered in 1887, Sigmund Freud's co-author, Joseph Breuer, had already treated the woman called Anna O, the patient zero for psychoanalysis and the first psychoanalytic papers were shortly to appear. Otello dies precisely at the analogous moment, in the reprise in Act Four, as the sky music in Act One. His death struggle on the floor is depicted in the strings. This low register-specific effect is as appropriate here as the high register one was in the first act, and the curtain is brought down in exactly the same place in both. With psychoanalysis less than a decade away, and Einstein's first major papers less than two, orchestral confectionery, as Bernard Shaw said, might be just right for accompanying the stars and mental impressions as both were being re-understood. In retrospect, Verdi seems to have been ahead of Shaw in expressing the stars impressionistically as well as melodically. I hope there's a clear night sky above you, wherever you're hearing this. Neil deGrasse Tyson bids us to keep looking up. I bid you to keep listening up and down and to every octave in between. Thanks to Vera Ellie for her help with these last three episodes. Really, one large episode split into three. Thanks also to Melanie Shirinyan. And a big thanks to the woman who sings Happy Birthday in Part 1, and who, when I began work on these episodes, was my girlfriend, and is now my beloved wife.
Thank you, honey. And thank you again for listening. I'm Sina Kiai. This is Thinking in Music.